This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In today's episode, Sophie White is a journalist, author and podcaster with the brilliant Mother of Pod and The Creep Dive. She also has a weekly column in the Sunday Independence Life magazine. And now she's just published her debut novel, Filter This, in which she peels back the social media mask that many people wear to disguise what's really going on in their lives. Sophie came in to talk to me about the book, whose main character, Ali, is hell-bent on curating the perfect Insta-fabulous life online at any cost. And we also speak about that whole influencer world, what hashtag SpawnCon is, and Sophie speaks very honestly about the real and difficult experience of being rejected by publishers. Also today, Fianna Fáil councillor Lisa MacDonald this week accused her party of sexism and said its doll team resembles an out-of-shape male soccer team. We'll talk to her about why she feels Fianna Fáil have a problem with women. But first, Louise Bruton is here for a chat. Louise, as many of you will know, is a journalist whose work often appears in the Irish Times. She's also a wheelchair user and frequently writes about the frustrations and misconceptions associated with that. So, Louise, we've heard a lot this week about the George Bernard Shaw um, closed down. A lot of people very upset, but it brought to mind an issue for you as a wheelchair user. So tell us about that. Um, so I've had two relationships with Dublin, I suppose. And the first one would be the the change I went in my life from being a crutches user to a wheelchair user. I had to stop going to a lot of places because they were not accessible to wheelchair users. And there was a regular excuse that I hear a lot of the time from many establishments was that they were protected buildings and they'd done all they could do in terms of applying to insert either a lift or wheelchair bathrooms or putting in ramp to entrances. So that was an excuse that I've always had. I've known, OK, protected buildings, um, they they can have relaxed regulations if um, if the integrity, if the architectural integrity of the building can be protected. So that means that kind of certain access requirements are skipped over. Infuriating as that is, you're, you, I can kind of understand what kind of, okay, you have to protect history, you have to protect culture. But now as we're walking around the building site that is Dublin, 
I'm wondering where the protection of the culture is and when places can be ripped down and bulldozed and replaced with office blocks and hotels and student accommodation that very few students can actually afford. Um, I'm just wondering what what Dublin, what's being protected in Dublin? What exactly is being preserved? And that excuse that we couldn't get disabled bathrooms because that would sort of somehow damage the, the integrity of the building. But you can just bulldoze them, which exactly. is a bigger thing than just adding a... A disabled toilet. Yeah, it's just like they're going to just start again. They're going to go from from zero and rebuild. Um, and as if all the years before of disabled people trying to have an equal social life uh, to non-disabled people just didn't matter. Um, and even more infuriating is the things that are going in in place are are buildings that aren't really kind of part of the day to day life. There's going to be all these new office blocks. I'm kind of wondering how many uh, disabled people they're going to actually employ within their their workforce. Um, And then how many of us are actually going to go and socialise in hotels? I don't really understand that. And if these these hotels will obviously comply fully with building regulations, so that means that they'll be fully accessible. But where will the disabled tourists go when they're in Ireland? Um, They can't just hang around their hotel. That's not what you do when you go on holidays. Um, And they're being excluded from any kind of interesting, more offbeat kind of venues because they're, they don't have any facilities. Yeah, exactly. Well, those venues either don't exist anymore or they don't have the proper facilities. So it's a very kind of tricky situation where you're just kind of maybe pushing because people come to Ireland for heritage. They come to Ireland for culture. And they're the two kind of main areas that seem to be kind of targeted in this sort of rebuild. Um, so are you just going to send people into a, a building that could be in San Francisco or could be Berlin? It's just this carbon copy of uh, gentrified cities. Um, and it's really disappointing because uh, Dublin is a lively place, but we're just running out of places to actually live. Where do you hang out now? And uh, where can you go? At home. <laughs> no. um, oh, go on. No, um, I have... Th- there are uh, quite a lot of good people in, in Dublin, and I can only speak to Dublin because that's where I live, Yeah. Um, who are taking access into kind of a serious consideration. Um, and you can say like my friends who kind of run nightclubs, they are now making that a kind of priority to pick venues that do have access facilities. But with that, take, taking that consideration, there's only something like five uh, places that can kind of hold club nights yeah. that are actually wheelchair accessible or accessible to disabled people. So it's a very narrow um, kind of margin that we're working with here and it's, it's really difficult. And you have your own club night. I do have my own club night. Tell us yeah. about that because people, it sounds, I always look at it on the Twitter or the Instagram and I'm like, that looks great. I just haven't got out to it, but it sounds like brilliant music and great fun. Yeah, um, so it's called Pure Shores and it was kind of born from the fact that um, a new music venue actually opened in Dublin and it's up loads of flights of stairs and I was very annoyed because it's taking a lot of gigs away from me and I need gigs as my social life and for my work and it's taking a lot of kind of club nights away from me which is where my friends go. So I run the night with my friend Michael who's in the band of the Galaxy and we were just like, okay, let's, let's just do this. Let's create a space that we would like to go to and that other people would like to go to as well. So it's in a wheelchair accessible venue, which is Wigwam on Abbey Street. Um, and we play only music by women, which is really fun um, because you don't hear a lot of songs. Uh, it's not a conscious thing, I think, with DJs, but you don't often hear a lot of music by women on the dance floor. And we're just doing full uh, it's amazing. from so 11 that's probably a, uh, No one else in the country is doing that, let's say. Um, if they're doing it, maybe they weren't doing it intentionally, but we've that's our kind of our mission, yeah. just to play music by women. Brilliant. Listen, what's on your radar at the moment, apart from this annoying subject, which I think it's great to talk about in lots of different ways. Una Mullally's written loads of great things um, and people are very exercised about it. But what are you doing culture wise and what is getting you excited? Um, 
I think every evening for this two week block, I've got a friend show uh, that I'm going to a friend show. Um, so one of the first shows I saw was Gamad by Vicky Curtis okay. and Anya O'Hara. And that was a big education. I'm from Kildare, so <laughs> don't really get many chances to embrace Ga. Um, so this was a real education in Ga from a Dublin, a Dubliner and a Mayo woman. Um, and they are explaining kind of the social history behind the Ga and the quality kind of conversation within Ga between gender and between um, sexual identity. So it's really, and it's so funny. Like, it's so funny. And that's on the Beaulieu's Theatre. And you kind of, if you if you, do, if you go in as a Ga fan, you're kind of nodding along. And if you're going in as a Ga ignoramus like myself, you're yeah. like, oh, I never I'd knew. I'd be the Ga ignoramus, <laughs> but I'd be, I think I'd enjoy it because it sounds like it's kind of demystifying things a bit. Yeah, and it's very, it's quite fun in the way that the, the Vicky and Anya, they kind of move around the venue as well. And you can kind of get your, your Mayo or Dublin rivalry going strong. You have to pick a, pick a flag. Oh, right, and when good. I picked the Mayo flag, I was like hissed at. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, you know, that's always good. Um, Excellent. And that's in Beauty's Cafe Theatre. So you can kind of have your lunch in some of these things. Yeah, I, I went to a lunchtime in. show. Yeah, so yeah. there's lunchtime shows and evening shows as well. Brilliant. So um, you can check that out on the Fringe website. Um, anything else you're looking forward to or you've been to? Um, well, I saw last night. Night and the night before, I saw Nine Weeks by Sean Kennedy, which is in Smock Alley Theatre. And that is a very hard but very beautiful show about losing a parent. And I think the way that Sean did, he's a classically trained singer as well, so he incorporates a bit of that. And it's about the death of his mother in Australia and the, the process it was to bring her home to Ireland before she actually died. Um, she was very ill. And I think that kind of reminds us that you can sometimes be dismissive of when someone loses a parent because you're like, everyone goes through it. Yeah. But then you can, when you hear the person's stories, you're just reminded that we kind of have, we have, we have to be kinder to people. We have to remember that just because it happens to everyone doesn't mean that it's just a very... And that everyone's story is different as well. Incredible, all yeah. Sorts of, um, so that, that one was a tough one, but it's a very important one to go see. Um, Admin I saw last night in the Project Arts Centre and that's by Ushin McKenna. And that is, um, it's very much kind of capturing onto the kind of personal personal anxieties that a lot of people in their 20s and 30s are maybe going through as they move to a city like London. And it's that thing of just trying to survive, but also to feel like you're, that you're looking after yourself and how those things mightn't always uh, harmonise with each other. Um, so that was kind of an all too real thing to see if anyone has moved away or if anyone's just trying to yeah. just trying to survive. You're going to need to lie down after this. It sounds like you're just, it's very <laughs> hectic. Yeah, I'm so tired. <laughs> um, and then just one other cultural moment I want to speak about this week for women is Margaret Atwood and the Testaments coming out. I have two books at home. One that is um, a very lovely uh, new edition of The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments. And I'm going to go back to The Handmaid's Tale again to do that and then go straight into The Testaments because I feel like that will be a good way in. But it's really great, isn't it? And Margaret Atwood is 80 and she's been fated all over the place for this. It's it's just wonderful. I know, it's just really exciting as well and that it's, it's already been initially kind of listed out for all these big prizes, but like it's not barely in the hands yeah. of all the readers. So that's just like really exciting. And I loved all the launches where you've got the handmade women standing there going, but that kind of creeps me out. It's really freaky. Because um, I don't know if you ever saw it, but that Kylie Jenner had a Handmaid's Tale party. <laughs> we did, and we mentioned it on the podcast. Just the point that was missed there. <laughs> and now whenever I see a handmaid out in the wild, I'm like, do they know what they're doing? Are they sure? Have, do they I know what they're Handmaids in the wild. <laughs> no, hopefully they do. Hopefully it's only the Jenners that don't really get it. Yeah, well, and hopefully they even get it now after all the the criticism of of the party. Oh, they might think that it's just you know over the top. The That's their problem. Like, why are they being so? Yeah, it could be a bit of that. But anyway, very exciting book, and um, apparently, by all accounts from any reviews I've read, it really 
hits the mark and she's there and I just think she's incredible phenomenal Will that be your weekend now reading the two It will be the two together and I have a couple of others so I don't know how I'll have to fit it in somehow Yeah, I'll have a, I'll be Just ha- don't eat <laughs> No exactly just keep reading. eat and read do the, do the two at the same time multitasking you know um, Louise thank you very much for coming in and I hope you come back again to talk to us Thank you In her debut novel, Filter This, Sophie White sets the action in the online world of social media and Instagram. Main character Ali Jones has her sight set on one goal, achieving 10,000 Instagram followers and winning at the upcoming Glossy Influencer Awards. The book takes a deep dive into online validation and looks behind the obsession in a funny, razor-sharp and sometimes heartbreaking way. Sophie came into studio to talk to me about the book and what inspired her to write it. Sophie White, first of all, well done on writing a book. Thank you. I think anyone who does that is amazing. Um, It's a book about Instagram culture and about the kind of narcissism of it and the fakeness of it and all those things. Why were you so fascinated with that subject? Um, I suppose I joined Instagram kind of late. Um, late 2016, which actually actually counts as a late adopter. Yeah. And uh, the whole kind of culture was definitely already alive and well and thriving on there of the kind of, you know, performing perfection for the likes. And I think I was like a tourist kind of like landing in on this kind of foreign, uh, this kind of foreign planet and going, oh, my God, like is this okay? Is this what we're all doing now? You know, it's that selfies, it's completely okay. We're all just okay with us all <laughs> doing this. And I was really instantly fascinated. And then I was instantly drawn in and I saw the change in myself. And that is what sparked, I suppose, such an intense fascination for me was that I, on the one hand, felt, oh my God, I'm so cynical. This is so, this is batshit. This is insincere lunacy. Um, and then on the other hand, I was like, taking Craving a picture. the attention. Oh, I was taking a picture of my like, you know, back doors looking out into the garden. I noticed because I live in like a normal house, there was like some stray wires just hanging down. And I caught myself just for a moment being like, I might just edit them out. And then I was like, whoa, uh-oh, I'm down the hole. Like, reverse hard reverse and so that's kind of what started the fascination and then I suppose um, it was just in the wake of like that massive scandal in Australia with the wellness blogger Belle Gibson um, being outed as having faked cancer online um, to kind of promote her brand and I was so captivated by the insanity of this And I just thought, whoa, like if that's the kind of thing that's going on here, kind of married my love of sort of everything really, like scam artists and sort of, I suppose that that kind of persistent fear we all have of being found out in some way, shape or form. And I think that's such a kind of a, a universal sort of fear, even if you're not touting a fake pregnancy on Instagram like Ali Jones is in Filter This. is the main character in the book. So tell us about Ali, like she's, desperate for the likes oh, uh, she's she not is. happy with her job she's not happy in lots of aspects of her life she's a bit of a mess I quite like her messiness because being someone who's quite messy myself That's um, it. but she yes she does something like that you think oh my god 
way out there where she pretends to be it kind of happens by accident in fairness to her uh, but she's pretending to have this pregnancy online to gather more attention and it does give her more attention absolutely like as you said it's kind of like inadvertent initially she's kind of outed as being pregnant publicly when she's not and when it almost immediately starts paying off in hashtag spawn Sweet, sweet SponCon deals. We should say what SponCon is because there are some people out there who are not in this Instagram culture. So <laughs> this is sponsored con- content. Sponsored so content. People- so brands kind of will pay you to endorse their brand on your platform on Instagram. The so more followers you have. People. Yes, the more lucrative the deals can be. And I suppose I had kind of identified when I first joined Instagram, I was particularly interested in the kind of mummy influencer sort of sphere because I was a new mum myself and I was like this is like madness like these women none of them are crying in despair with a colicky newborn like latched onto them like a limpet what is this here's a woman she's got a six week old baby she's wearing skinny jeans like where are all the fluids like you know (laughs) I just thought like this is the most bizarre mass kind of whitewashing and airbrushing of the motherhood experience. Propaganda, really, isn't it? I thought it? completely. Yeah. I thought I've been completely sold a lie. Motherhood is nothing like it looks on Instagram. <laughs> and I felt betrayed by the culture yeah. as a whole. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's why I really wanted to bring that world in to filter this. And um, as you said, like Ali's in a kind of a dark place. Personally, like her dad is really sick. Her, you know, she's in her early 20s. The career is kind of, you know, like flailing. You know what we were all doing in our early 20s. She's drinking too much and she's kind of hiding from, you know, the kind of hard stuff, uh, which I think we all kind of know. And um, so I kind of, she kind of stumbles into the lie and then it just kind of gets a life of its own. You and know? the other character uh, who's very interesting is this woman, Shelley, who is really performing brilliantly on Instagram and her whole life is that to the extent where she's neglecting her husband neglecting her daughter she's just all about the likes and that's her whole world yeah. and obviously as as you'd expect things start to unravel for her too yeah completely like Shelley Devine is Ireland's premier influencer in the world of Filter This uh, she's a completely fictitious character oh yes of Don't course come Sophie at me. yes, yes. <laughs> everyone's got theories um, and like basically her brand Shelly it's a lifestyle brand it's become a machine she barely has any control or say over it practically anymore she's got a kind of a like maniacal sort of um, you know uh, assistant who's practically her boss um, kind of like steering the ship I love ship. that assistant she's great Amy yeah I love Amy and uh Obviously, cracks are appearing. And I suppose the thing I was really interested in is that influencers, they're relatively new phenomenon. It's they are working out in a kind of a Wild West sort of industry where, you know, the, you know, ASAI are trying to kind of, you know, they're kind of scrambling to keep up with how do we sort of create standards for people to adhere to when they're advertising on Instagram. It's all very interesting. I love when Morning Ireland ever reports on anything influencer related because I'm just like, I feel like we're in Black Mirror. Um, But I think the kind of knee-jerk kind of, I think, lazy sort of take on influencers is that they're shallow. And I think that we're all kind of guilty of like kind of reducing them, even as a kind of, uh, you know, an avid follower like myself. Like I I kind of think of them as two dimensional people you know, just kind of like performing the sideshow of perfection. But is that, Sophie, because that's what they 
I mean, isn't it not inevitable that you feel like that about them? Because that's what they're giving off. That's all they're wanting you to see. They don't want you to see the human, the, the messiness, the, the wires hanging down on the door <laughs> and, and, you know, the fluids that, that you said. So that's what they want. So I do suppose, you feel, should feel I bad mean, about not thinking of them as humans? Well, <laughs> I suppose, yes, they're heavily editing their lives. But I don't, I just think that it's kind of lazy and reductive to kind of say they are just like a blanket kind of race of superficial kind of people, you know, which I think sometimes is the kind of representations, particularly in the media and things. And I was so interested in, uh, you know, what does it do to you to kind of perform your life? Because that's what the kind of influencer thing is. You're the product and it's kind of, it just must be this incredible pressure, I think. So to... Shelley's life begins to unravel. Had you seen that? Because it's interesting. You don't hear that many stories. We have the Caroline Calloway thing that's going on at the moment, which is oh my absolutely amazing. If anyone doesn't know, there was this brilliant article written uh, in the New York magazine by, I think, Natalie Beach is her name, who was this friend of this mega, mega influencer, Caroline Calloway. And she has basically exposed Caroline Calloway for being for being this person who's not living the life that she has been putting out there, exactly as as you say. So it's really interesting that Filter This is coming at a sort of time. Because before that, I don't think we'd seen the other side of, of what it does to people. Like, were you making it up or had you had you some experience of people's lives kind of unravelling because of this? Um, well, I wrote The Guts of It in 2018 and there was a lot going on, at least in my kind of my particular corner of the internet where all my obsessions live. And I would say I would be obsessing about Caroline Calloway probably before this happened. Ah, okay. Um, Because I'd never heard of her, you see. I'm just not in that Instagram thing as much. I know, and it's really funny because she's got about 800,000 followers, close to a million people, you know, tracking her for years. Um, And then I suppose that's kind of the nature of sort of like modern fame is that you can be so intensely famous among one million people and then yeah. nobody else knows who like you are. it's like yesterday at 9-11 the three top trending things in Ireland were about this K-pop star Jamun or some I don't even kind of remember his name but he's mega famous and I didn't know who the hell he was I had to Google him it is really interesting. Yeah it is it's mad it's kind of micro audiences now rather but, but than a kind of a ones. big massive yeah. mainstream kind of um, one but yeah I mean I suppose I'd followed like Bloggers Unveiled here in Ireland was a big account that started early in 2018 and it kind of it sort of like dealt in sort of the petty crimes and misdemeanors of Irish influencers. So were these people because I, I again again I'm not um, I, I'm a Twitter person and that's kind of where I'm stuck. Yeah. Were these people going around trying to find things out that these influencers had done that were shady or dodgy and then expose them. Is that what they were doing? Exactly that, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it was a strange... And was it one person or was it a group of people? I mean, I think that's all still kind of unknown. It was an anonymous account. Now there's a fair few of them. Um, And it's, I suppose it's just this kind of mad sort of you know, social monitoring practically that was kind of going on. And what I was amazed by was how fast this account grew. It was an anonymous private account, so you had to request to join. And I think it grew to about 80,000 followers in a matter of weeks. And I just remember watching it and being like, our appetite for these people is, it's ravenous. We are like, you know, rabid dogs, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it really all feeds back into that kind of Irish sort of curtain twitching, sort of watching the neighbours. I think we are a really unique community for something like that to kind of catch on. I think ultimately people felt discomforted by what was being put up there on that account because it all started to feel kind of gross and... 
but kind you, of bullying. But did you sort of get inspiration for Shelley from oh. that in terms of mm. seeing how what people are presenting versus what's the actual story behind can be so Absolutely. different? And also, I think I was very, it was the first time I was made so aware of what kind of influences are dealing with in terms of like their followers, like applying the pressure and like them almost being kind of at the mercy of this kind of faceless huge audience, you know? And like the kind of like power play there is not as simple as fan and kind of object of adoration. That object of adoration is kind of trying to appease their followers every day. I just thought it was really interesting. And Sophie, don't mind me asking what age you are now. <laughs> like because you're too old for this, well, Sophie. Well, would no. you turn the internet I mean, no, off? Part, there's a little bit of that for me because I feel a bit <laughs> left behind. I can't quite, and I'm a sucker for anything like that. And yeah. I would be, you know, someone who watched Big Brother, and I'm, I'm mm. definitely not like. And I've just watched this thing on Channel Four called The Circle. I don't know if you've watched that, which is a another kind of reality TV thing, but very, I think it's very good anyway. But so it's not like I'm, I don't, I'm being snobby about it, but yeah, I sort of no, feel no. I missed the boat a little bit in terms of my age. But you're, you, I'm 34. Yeah, so yeah. you're like te- 13 years younger than me, right? So. But do you think then it's a 20s and 30s thing? Do you think there is a sort of a cut-off generational point I mean, maybe. where people don't care? Like the people on Morning Ireland are, are still kind of going, these influencers, what the hell is that? You know? <laughs> um, I think some of my old, like I'd say my older kind of friends that are kind of, I suppose, bet into Instagram, maybe not participating, but certainly but they're watching. Yeah, 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 the lurkers. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, I'd say up to kind of 40, mid 40s. Right. Because uh, see, what I'm afraid of, and I, I have an Instagram account, but I don't go on it very often and it's not even in my name. It, um, if anyone wants to follow me for none, for no updates, it's Ringle Bells is my, <laughs> it's my thing. Um, I'm sort of afraid of what, if I did get into it, how much time it might take up, how I would get like what you were describing at the beginning about obsessed and oh, I got likes for this. So and then I look at other people's things and I start to feel quite depressed about my own my own house, my own life, my own, you know, parenting or whatever else. So I sort of stay away from it for that reason. Um, Did you have any sense of that or or not? Oh, no, yes. I think it's it is a kind of a dangerous kind of validation machine. And it's kind of like I think it's highly addictive. I think even some of the kind of app makers have, you know, admitted that they, you know, very consciously tried to do that. Um, And I definitely see, I like, the studies uh, linking social media use with depression and anxiety. And I think that was always the kind of thing that, like, those kind of anonymous accounts used to kind of use as a sort of a justification was that, like, kind of the younger uh, consumers of Instagram, you know, aren't mature enough psychologically to kind of weed out what is all for the gram nonsense versus everyone's got real lives behind this and, you know, Do you think now, though, people are more tuned into that? Do you think that kind of wave has gone and now it's like, well, we know it's not really real, but we still enjoy consuming it? Yeah, I kind of feel, now this is my pet theory, that, like, (laughs) the younger generation are going to scoff at all of our ridiculous ways. Okay. I think we're like toddlers with like a new toy. We don't know how to work it. (laughs) We're like filtering ourselves until we look like the crazy cat lady. And I think that our kids will be like, oh, guys, guys, (laughs) can you you just try and have a little bit of chill? Do you think real life is going to come in more to Instagram then? Like, or is anyone interested in that? Because are there any, I bet you, I mean, Sophie, I don't look at your Instagram, but are you still on it? Are you still active on it? Yeah, yeah. So do you leave the wires? At Sophie White writes. At Sophie White. And I'm (laughs) Ashering Bells, even though I don't post anything, so you're probably not worth doing anything. Um, But uh, yeah, do do you do the wires now and do you give your real life and is that your your brand? And I'm putting it in, you know, inverted commas there. (laughs) Air quotes. Oh, my USP. Yeah. is that there is no filter okay. on my Instagram. But no, I think now, I I mean, 
there's a way more, uh, you know, powerful move towards honesty online. Right. And I think there's brilliant pockets of, you know, uh, sincerity on social media. Uh, you, if you follow the right people, I think that's kind of what everyone always sort of says is like you curate your feed to kind of find the meaningful stuff that you're interested in. And uh but I, there's kind of two sides to this one because I do also see a lot of the kind of big influencers are kind of suddenly like, oh, the authenticity book is very important. <laughs> do you know that kind of way? And like, you know, whoever has been on there for years and she's got 100,000 followers and like she's always been immaculate in bikini shots. She's suddenly now like... <laughs> I need a belly roll and I need a belly roll now. <laughs> Give me some cellulite, you know, like, and it's fascinating because look, when there's an audience, there's going to be a strange performative element to all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, personally, I think it's like great fun. Like, I just am fascinated. I truly am. Like, I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. Writing a book about Instagram is so tough because I'd be like, tap, tap, tap. And I'd be like, better just check something on Instagram. <laughs> Seven hours later, I'd be like so deep down the hole of like a personal shopper from Cork. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh, the deadline, I've got to get back, you know? Well, speaking of which, you did produce this brilliant book. I have to tell our listeners that it's hilarious. Um, I think uh, Jenny, who's a co-producer of the podcast, said it's like the ur- urban Ashlings, a bit like that, which I think is oh, high compliment, you. you know? Yes. Um, but... Everyone thinks that the bit about writing a book is the sitting down, tap tapping away, even if you go off for seven hours to Instagram, that the hardest thing is right. But now, now it is hard. I'm, I'm not going to let you sit here and say it's not hard. I know you enjoyed it and you did get it done and all that kind of thing. But you also talk about rejection um, in terms of when you've got your book and you're trying to get someone to publish it, how hard that is. And I think for a lot of people, they just think these things just happen and it's so easy. But that wasn't your experience. So make us all feel a bit better by how annoying that process was. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I wrote about uh, this topic for um, uh, this month's image. And uh, I almost kind of didn't want to write it because... I think there's such a kind of a sense that like rejection is sort of like it's catching and it's kind of radioactive and you definitely don't want to like <laughs> totally d- like draw anyone's attention to all your fails. And, and that's I, kind of what Instagram is, isn't it? It's totally. like don't put up anything that's actually real or makes you look like less of a oh, good absolutely. person. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I literally was just scared my editor would read this column and then kind of notice that I'm crap. <laughs> and I, you know. I love it. Um, and But I think what I really did learn in my years of rejection is that like behind any project that makes it, everybody has like the, you know, the kind of spit bucket of just disasters. And yeah, like I think the thing with uh, publishing a book is that you're kind of trying to find an agent and you're trying to find an editor. And so that's like a double whammy of rejection, I suppose, um, for authors. And you're just sending out the manuscript, you're sending out query letters um, I read a brilliant article on um, actually Tramp Press's uh, website that was about getting rejected a hundred times, like to actually see rejection as a target, like something mm. to make up the numbers, like to, to know you're doing the work of it. You have to just keep on keeping on with it. And uh, it's really tough because I genuinely felt every one of those rejections. Like How many I, did no, you get? Talk us through. So were, you, you were sending it off to all these agents and editors and 
Yeah, publishers yeah. and just getting these letters back and some are better than others you kind of yeah. there's a way to write a good rejection letter and a way to write a terrible one oh yeah well like just some of them are just so crushing and then like the silence ones are really crushing like when you just never hear you're just howling into the void um, I think like I basically sent like my first uh, query letter for an agent in like 2016 and I got an agent like exactly a month ago so uh, okay. It's kind of been a long road, but I, I got um, a home at Hachette for Filter This before I got an agent. I got a home for its sequel, Unfiltered, which is coming uh, just after the new year. So, I mean, I suppose in true Sophie's style, I did everything arse ways, I guess. But there were so many times where I just thought, I don't know if I can keep at this. There has to be, I have to kind of eventually sort of say there's a kind of, I suppose, a cutoff, like, because... Genuinely, I felt it, it was really, really tough. I'd love to be able to say that, like, I just, you know, steeled myself against every letter that was like, I don't really know what you're getting at with this book. And, you know, like, you get a lot of that stuff. For oh, is sure. that the kind of thing? That's really that's Oh, so God. Awful. Well, like, you get kind of everything. You get, like, oh, you know, you've got a great voice, but I don't see this being, you know, commercial enough. Or, or a lot of people kind of felt that it fell between genres and um, that it was like too dark. I remember one agent being like referencing everything that's based on my real life and being like, all of this was just so dark. And I was like, oh, crushing. <laughs> because that's something we should point out, actually. It's your first book. And I mean, everyone does it from, I'd say, Martin Amis to every person who writes a book. A lot of you is in this or mm. your experiences. I think when people go on, write more books, they can kind of get free of that. But I think for a first book, if we look at like even Watermelon by um, uh, Marion Keys, Keys, you know, a lot of her in that, which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so like your dad, uh, you know, was ill and it's the main character's dad. So did you draw a lot from your own experience for it? Um, I did. I mean, it's a lot of cherry picking. And I would say like most characters that I write are always kind of composites of people I know, but not the character of Miles, who's the dad in Filter This. Miles is like a portrait of my dad. Um, now, there's kind of details that are different. Like my dad works on TV and Miles in the book is a restaurateur and a kind of, you know, but they both had a love of like music. The whole kind of spirit of Miles is totally my dad. And I really liked doing that. Um, I started writing it, um, you know, about six months after he died. And I kind of initially just was like, I need an illness. This is the one I've lived in for years. Like, uh, my dad had early onset Alzheimer's, uh, same as Ali's dad in the book. And I suppose that was kind of a, a lazy, almost laziness thing of, I don't even need to Google anything about this. But as I went on with it, I realized that actually I was kind of exercising something by kind of uh, sort of a tribute to him. And also like, you know, my dad worked in TV, loved books, loved film, like storytelling and entertaining was his thing. And I suppose like I would have just loved for him to have seen this, you know. So it was a way of him being in it, I guess. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Now, um, you are pregnant again. I am, yeah. So hashtag bump or what's hashtag the... Hashtag bump journey. Bump journey, yeah. Hashtag, hashtag anyone want to spawn con Hashtag spawn con. My kids are hungry. Yeah. Books aren't that lucrative. <laughs> um, is this, this is your third? It is my third. Yeah, my third boy. So will you be, you know, hashtag bump journey on Instagram or is that completely off brand for you? I don't know. I haven't really done any of it. I wasn't really on Instagram the last time I was pregnant. And so I never had to do one of those like bump announcements. 
that you see on Instagram. Is it a bump announcement? Is yeah, there's a, it's a thing. Okay. And I was genuinely like, should I, do I need to do this? I mean, I kind of tend to just like do more of my kind of every day. So when I went back to Holland Street for my first appointment, I kind of took a picture of the sign and wrote back at my bullshit and people were like, oh, you're pregnant again. And But I also do, I co-host a podcast on uh, parenting called Mother Pod. So we'd kind of, we'd outed me on that and on the other podcast I do, The Creep Dive. So different pockets of people had known about it had known about it before any of my real friends or family did (laughs) that's hilarious yes so so you're still living a bit of the insta kind of life where absolutely yeah I I I just get a kick out of it I don't do a huge amount I'm way more of a consumer like I follow a lot of I mean, I don't even follow the big names. I follow, like, as I said, like, personal shopper in Cork. I'm just like, she's redoing the kitchen extension. And I am so emotionally invested in this thing, you know? Like, I think that's what so many of us actually are on there for. And I mean, as well, the, I should mention these Insta stories, which I, I, I just feel so anxious. I still can't get my head around it, you just really. just need to break the seal. Yeah. Ringle Bells Maybe. needs yeah. some Insta stories. Will you help me? I will help you. <laughs> I will help you. It's really fun. Okay, brilliant. Well, that's good. We'll, we'll do that and then I'll, I'll let listeners know about how we get on with it. But listen, just to say, Filter This by Sophie White. It's an absolutely brilliant read. I read it on my holidays and I just I couldn't stop turning the pages and wanted to get to the end. And now that there's a sequel, it's fun, fantastic. Is it out in January, did you say? Uh, no, I think it's... Uh, it's a bit I think soon, it's isn't it? scheduled yeah. for March. Okay. But, but I know it's available to pre-order. After. Okay. Um, so it's unfiltered and it is uh, picking up where filter this leaves off. Brilliant. And is this the start of your novelist journey, hashtag novelist journey? But are you <laughs> going to be, like, do you think this kind of world is what you're going to stick with? Or if you found your kind of, you know, novel writing chops now, do you feel like you're on your way and, and you can explore other worlds as well? Or Oh God, I don't know now. Like, I mean, as in, I know that I, this is what I want to do for Evs. Like, this is what I've always for kind Evs. of been <laughs> working towards. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's a huge dream. Like, it actually really is. I think that's, because you've been a journalist and you've done all sorts of different writing, but you yeah, know, there's always yeah. that thing. And I'd written my first book and after my first book, uh, Recipes for Nervous Breakdown, still available. Um, so many people were like, oh, you must write a novel. And I remember being like, as if it's the easiest thing in the world, like, you know, but it was in my head. Mm. And I do love it. Like, as in, I kind of, when I'm writing, I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But, I mean, there's a lot more rejection coming my way. Uh, as well and like I definitely know and feel that but I suppose you're just not doing anything if you're not getting rejected like do you know and um, so good. I would That's love nice. to be doing it forever but I have we'll to see. say as well because we had you on the podcast about um, recipes for nervous breakdown mm. which I absolutely love and I loved how honest and kind of open you are and you know not it's just it's the surprising sort of take on things and I think Filter This is also that it has that kind of undercurrent of darkness and unexpectedness and um, it's funny too which I think is a real achievement because people think being funny is kind of easy and it's not easy it's Oh, it's yeah. a particular it's hard to skill. Write it. Yeah, it's a particular skill to make people laugh out loud, and this book does that. So, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's well, it's really good because people are often like, I mean, you know, did you know it was funny? And I was like, 
No, absolutely not. Like, no one finds themselves sexy. You don't find yourself funny. Do you know what I mean? It's I think some people on Instagram find themselves so, sexy. <laughs> well, they are sexy. No, that's true. They're hashtag sexy. I don't know what that sexy times hashtag is. But, I'm sure. but I really am sounding like around 70,000. Okay, time to wrap it up. Look, Jenny's got her hands over her face. Sophie White, uh, thank you very much. And I'll see you on the gram. Thank you so much. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, Fianna Fáil councillor Lisa MacDonald in Wexford has caused a bit of controversy this week after she said it seems to be that Fianna Fáil have a problem with women. She was speaking after the party added two male candidates to her Wexford election ticket, making her the only woman on a four-person ticket. Malcolm Byrne and Michael Sheehan will run alongside Miss MacDonald and sitting Fianna Fáil TD James Brown. I spoke to Councillor MacDonald about why she thinks this is a move by the party to get her off the ticket and why, in her view, Fianna Fáil has a problem with women. Now, Lisa, you have said things in recent days like it seems to be that Fianna Fáil have a problem with women they genuinely have. You've accused the party of sexism. You've said they're like an out-of-shape uh, football team. Um, so can you just let us know why you think it is that Fianna Fáil has a problem with women? I think it probably goes back to the foundation of the state, perhaps. You know, we've been... Uh, very slowly building up the female um, uh, representation in Dáil Éireann. Very, very so, slowly. I mean, it's 100 years, uh, over 100 years since Countess Markovitch became the first woman to be elected to either Parliament in, in Ireland or in Great Britain. Um, and how far have we actually come in that time, you know? Uh, I think we now have just about 30 uh, women TDs. Um, five or six, six of whom are with um, in Fianna Fáil. Um, I think that they were very spooked when the uh, gender balance legislation came through. Um, I was on the in the Senate at the time with Ivana Bacic and um, we together put together the um, report which recommended that um, we have party and candidature uh, balance. Um, so in other words, that when the candidates are selected, that one third um, of the candidates had to be from either male or female. Um, Fianna Fáil went around the country um, after that, putting people, putting women on tickets that didn't have a realistic opportunity of getting elected. Right. Um, that sickened me at the time. So um, you th- you're saying that was a deliberate strategy. Let's put women on. We know of no hope and then they won't get through. Absolutely, yeah. So they didn't take this seriously is what they you're saying? They didn't take it seriously, no. Now, there were some that, I mean, had were there on merit. Absolutely. I mean, the likes of Lisa Chambers, Fiona Lachlan. I mean, they, they, they had carved out their, their niche and uh, I think they, they got through um, the party um, in on merit. Um, I think in Lisa's case, she was also very lucky that Derek Leary was, you know, so presidential in the manner in which he... Um, um, went forward with her um, because he, he, you know, he, he stuck to vote management and he, he was he was generous with, with, with the manner in which the vote was distributed in, in Mayo. So she was lucky in that regard. Um, but there's no doubt that she has absolutely stood her own. And, and there are examples of that in, in all parties, in fairness. Um, but like one person or, or two people, maybe, you know, that doesn't make a difference. It's not going to make a huge difference. You're still going to be the, the wallflower, the token uh, female, even if you are 
exceptionally good at what you do. What we need is a mass, um, a mass of women. We, we, we represent 51% of the population um, are female. And yet we have this difficulty in attracting women in. And when you get women in like me, they approached me to run for the doll. It wasn't the other way around. I didn't have it in my, it wasn't on my radar. I have done it, been there, done that kind of thing. I wasn't really thinking of it. But they, Fianna Fáil headquarters, came to me and asked me to put my name forward for the general election. And I presume it was because they felt they had a difficulty with women. They needed more articulate women. They needed um, to, to brush off this image. Um, but they got spooked. Okay, but tell tell me about this getting spooked business. What mm. do you mean exactly by that? That that they felt like these men were needed to to be given a, a platform and that they'd been excluded and that wasn't right. Is, and that's what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that at all. I don't know um, anything about that. No, what I'm saying is that I was selected at the convention. Um, I then had to go carve out a new seat for myself in a new constituency. Um, the boundary um, in Wexford District for the, um, the the local elections is 500 yards from my house, right? Yeah. So I unfortunately got caught on a divide where, um, and the only vote I can look at is the 2004 vote when um, I ran in the last local elections, and 75% of my vote on that occasion was in the other district in, in the Wexford Town uh, district, but I was stuck having to run in a, in a rural constituency um, where there were two very strong, um, long-standing councillors. Um, and, and it, it, you know, it, it wasn't ever going to be an easy election. Um, but I also was a dual candidate, so I had to try and build alliances, keep people on side, etc. None of that was looked at. So it was simply that they, they, they just decided she doesn't have time for this. She's a mammy. You know, she makes uh, lunches in the morning for her children. Imagine that. Oh, yeah. You know, I go home and I tuck my children into bed. Yeah. You know? What about the men who are fathers? Did they not make lunches and took well, the children into bed? Well, none of them. Actually, bed? funnily enough, I'm the only parent um, of the four of us now on, on, um, on the ticket. I'm the only parent. Right. Right. So that's not necessarily gender um, specific, but certainly I'm the only family person mm. and I'm the only business person. So it, it seems to be in Fianna Fáil they get spooked by you not being able to fit into this little kind of, Michal called it scientific um, um, formula that um, is their perfect candidate. What is their perfect candidate, their magic formula? I'd say their perfect candidate is an unmarried um, person, be it male or female, but certainly in the female ranks, they do not want you with children. They do not want you um, being a family person. Oh yeah, it's great to say it, but, but in actual fact, they say, how does she have the time for this? I am sick listening to that. If I hear that once more, I think I might blow a gasket. How does she have the time for this? But how right? do the dads have time? Well, Why do they not get asked how do they have the time? This is it. I mean, you know, like Fianna Fáil laugh at the likes of uh, Radker going out to the electric picnic or whatever he does in his spare time. And, 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 you know, what are they doing? They're schmoozing around, you know, backslapping that goes on. And it's still there. It's still very prevalent. I was a young woman. I, I made my way up to Fianna Fáil um, you know, back in the days when, you know, it was it was difficult. It was kind of like, a you know, a, a troglodyte mm-hmm. uh, party and there were all these kind of, you always had to stay around. That's when the business was done. I don't see why we should be um, um, elongating that practice or continuing that practice, you know. Um, you don't think you need to be going for pints and out for rounds of golf and stuff, no? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, firstly, I don't play golf anyway because of a bad back, right? I'm a good golfer, <laughs> but I, I can't, I, I, I don't play it. Um 
you know, I, I mean, I fit an awful lot more of the norms than than your typical Fianna Fáil candidate would. <laughs> I think of the four candidates that are now running for Wexford, I think I'm the only one, actually, who ever played on a boys' football team. Right, I played under 12 for a ladies' island <laughs> uh, when they couldn't. You know, I, I've been on many sporting teams, and they're talking now about teamwork, etc. I have to put this to you because some people will just say you coming out talking about sexism and saying mm-hmm. Fianna Fáil has a problem with women is just sour grapes. Mm-hmm. You're annoyed that you're now don't you're not like a, you know your chances are are not as good, and you're just coming out with this because of that. What would you say to them? I, and this is ridiculous. Like you need to look at the facts, okay? 19,000 votes were cast, first preference votes were cast for Fianna Fáil in 2016. Now, that's not that long ago, and we haven't come up very much in the polls since. We have come up a little bit, but not a huge amount. So if we say that there are 23,000 votes there for the next general election, okay, and we say that James Brown gets a similar vote to the one he got on the last occasion, okay, that leaves 13,000 votes between three candidates. Yeah. Okay. Um, the quota on the last occasion was nearly 12,000. Yeah. Now, that's one seat. Now, Fianna Fáil have put on two men um, in the last 48 hours, have added two men to the ticket. Okay? Mm-hmm. So they clearly don't see me as being either capable or competent enough to go and um, get that seat. Okay? So... But if they put one on, which was obviously always going to be Malcolm, if they put the one person on, Malcolm still wouldn't have gotten elected because I will do well in my own area, right? So if I get, on the last occasion when I ran in 2007, I got 6,500 first preferences, right? And I ended up on 9,500 because I transferred well. Malcolm can't get elected with me on the ticket. Okay. So they need me off the ticket in order for Malcolm to get elected. And do you think that's what they're trying to get you Absolutely, off the ticket? Absolutely, because it doesn't make sense. Why would they put two people on? There, there's no need. I'm, I, Mick Wall, they say that the, the, the um, vacancy arises with Mick Wallace going to Europe, and it does, right? So where does Mick Wallace um, reside? He resides in Wellington Bridge, the brand new Wexford um, Rasselaer district um, encompasses Wellington Bridge. So, in fact, I'm in the local uh, council area that Mick Wallace is from. So it makes that doesn't even make sense. So what they've done is they put on two people. Now, if that vote, the best way for Malcolm to get elected is for him to get the middle-class vote around Wexford. Right. Right? And I'm stopping him from getting that. So they need me off the ticket. They can't ask me to come off the ticket because then they'll have a further sexism comments put at them, right? Yeah. Because they will, and I'll put that down now. Yeah. So they have to put somebody else on in order for me to feel as a business person and a mother that I'm wasting my time and that I'll just toddle off. Lisa, are you going to toddle off? I'm certainly not going to toddle off. Certainly not. I am not going to be bullied, good, bad or indifferent. I don't care. Um, Now, they might might decide to take me off or they might decide to sanction me. I don't know what they're going to do um, and bring it on. Okay, um, listen, but, Lisa. I just have one more thing to ask you about. Yeah. Your comments were very vocal, they're very outspoken. You were, you weren't mincing any words. You said as well, the female TDs were waiting for Mihol at the bottom of the stairs so they could go out and surround him when he came out to make his press conference. I think that is pathetic, quite mm. frankly. Does mm. this go to the heart of what you're talking about—a culture in the party? Yes, it does. And I mean, it's, it, 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 it's, I, I, if, if I had been asked to go and stand there as a TD, I'd have said, you know what, go and stuff it. I am not standing there beside you, making you look good. 
make your own arguments, get more women in, let's deal with the issues that are real, like cervical cancer, the, the Scali report, why did it happen in the first place, why were we screening on the cheap for women, let's talk about women's health, let's talk about family, the family law system which keeps women down, which was brought, brought in in 1989 when there was one woman in cabinet. Let's talk about the, the uh, toil that Irish women have gone through to get to this point in our society where now we have our, our children and our children's children going out and becoming you know, professionals um, and, and doing well for themselves, That's, and, but yet not getting to the top, yet having pay gaps, yet having pension gaps in their pay, etc. Let's talk about all that. We well, Lisa, want I'd, want you, society, I'd we want, want you to. representing me just based on, that, based on that speech alone. But finally, if you've got a message yeah. for Micheál Martin, what would you like to say to him really to tell him how we can fix this problem and what he needs to do about the problem uh, with women in, in Feed of All? He needs to actually believe in women. He needs to believe in mothers. He needs to believe in the businesswomen. He needs to actually look into his heart because I know he's a decent person, but he's afraid and he's spooked. And they, they're looking at numbers, numbers, numbers. But what they need to look at in Fianna Fáil more than numbers is the actual people they have in there in the party that could drive this country on in the right way and I believe I'm one of those and I believe there are plenty of women out there that are like that but they're just not being given the chance because this male manifestation that's been there since the beginning of Fianna Fáil is still very very prevalent in it. So Lisa you also said something that if it was said by a man about a group of women we on the women's podcast would be getting very upset you said they were like an out of shape football team so can you sort of clarify those remarks? Okay I, I didn't exactly put it like that Roisin but what I, what I mean by that is um, you know, any football team, any soccer team, any hurling team that you look at, is it's, it's a group of men or a group of, you know, I'm speaking about a male team here, right? So it's the imagery I'm speaking about, all male. You might have one or two women at the edge, maybe the bottle carrier or the physio or the first aid uh, person, but in, in a picture of a um, of a team, um, a soccer team, for example, um, it's male it's male-dominated imagery, okay? And that's what I'm referring to. Um, I, the out-of-shape aspect was, I suppose, for the Fianna Fáil front bench or the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party um, to look like a soccer team, they'd actually have to go and get in shape. That's all I meant by that. Okay. You know? Um, and can I just say, since I made that comment, I've been inundated by female membership of Fianna Fáil nationwide who have uh, dinged with that comment, who have uh, said, yes, you know what, we're sick of the male-focused and male-dominated party that we're part of. So you've struck a chord here. And I maybe... have struck a chord. I didn't mean to. It was a throwaway <laughs> comment. Um, but do, did I mean it? Yeah, I did. I didn't mean to, that they're out of shape or anything like that. I mean, there's some of them that are very fit <laughs> and very attractive-looking men. But at the same time, if you were to put them on a soccer pitch or a hurling pitch, they'd actually have to go and get, get, shape, get okay. in, in shape. Okay, thanks yeah. very much, Lisa. Not at all. So after we spoke to Lisa MacDonald, uh, we reached out to Fianna Fáil for a response to her comments and a spokeswoman came back to us and this is what she said. The completion of any general election ticket is often contentious and can regularly cause concern on the part of incumbent candidates. However, Fianna Fáil's National Constituencies Committee is charged with ensuring that the party feels the strongest possible candidate ticket in every single constituency. Since the candidate selection convention held in Wexford over a year ago, the committee has kept the Wexford ticket under review. This is what happens in every constituency and has been the practice for many decades. 
This week, after very careful review and consideration, the committee added two candidates to the Wexford ticket. The committee is very strongly of the view that the completed ticket offers the electorate of Wexford across its four districts a very strong and representative ticket which has the potential to maximise the party's vote in the constituency and build on our existing presence of one TD. We value Lisa as a councillor and general election candidate. However, no incumbent candidate in any constituency can expect to have a veto over the composition of the final candidate ticket. In addition, the range of assertions made by Lisa about the decision to add to the candidate ticket and about the party's attitude towards mothers and women in general are baseless and demonstrably untrue. It is also deeply unfair and hurtful to both current and former female Fianna Fáil representatives and members who have played a central role in our work and in the governance of this country at every level from our foundation to the current day. Our work to attract more women into politics is ongoing and continues to make progress. We understand that criticism of Fianna Fáil is one of the most reliable routes to media profile in this country, but we also believe that media has a responsibility to challenge assertions that are clearly and demonstrably untrue. That's the statement from the Fianna Fáil spokeswoman on the comments by Lisa MacDonald. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Louise Bruton, Lisa MacDonald and Sophie White. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.